I just want to present an idea that most temples are not familiar with. That's this term, horaku. Most ministers are not either. Uh, I, uh, because it's not really a part of what they study. But ho means dharma, and raku means um, joy, music, or entertainment. A very different meaning for the same kanji. So ho raku refers to those musical performances that were performed after a ritual. So after the service, there would be some part of the temple where people would go, usually to eat otoki, and be entertained. And this entertainment was called hora, dharma entertainment. The, the other meaning, which for most uh, people who study Buddhism, it means joy in the dharma. It means the, the ecstasy of enlightenment, of awakening. But on the other meaning, dharma entertainment, uh, it was uh, some kind of an entertainment that was provided after major services. Japan's history is long, and US history is incredibly interesting. From the very first establishment of a temple in America, they were doing horaku. Right? It reaches its peak just before Pearl Harbor, and Pearl Harbor destroys almost 90% of it. Right? It reaches its peak, for example, in the Seattle Gatsuin. Their horaku was a shibai that went on for two days and members uh, rehearsed their lives all year long. They were great Buddhist morality players. And towards the, the uh, end of the 30s, the first Kabuki troupe ever to come to the United States, toured the United States, the last stop was Seattle. And they didn't want to take all their stuff home, so they sold it to the Seattle Gatsuin for $1,000. And if you go downstairs to Seattle Gatsuin, it's incredible. They have fake swords, samurai wigs, costumes, everything. And nobody does it anymore. The group has died out, which is really too sad because they had incredible shibais that they prepared for years in advance. Other temples had gagaku. The earliest I can trace gagaku in the United States is 1912. This is very early. Right? And it was in um, uh, Vancouver, Seattle, uh, San Francisco, LA Basin. Um, and the person who taught it was a second son uh, from a family uh, in Shiga Prefecture, who for 14 generations, that family's job was to provide gagaku for this temple, right? whose priest was only there for 13 generations. Right? So unlike here, not only the priest and his family generations long, the monto, or the supporters of that temple, are generations long. He taught Gaoku. Right? And so it was flourishing up until, until Pearl Harbor. And with Pearl Harbor, anything that associated you with traditional Japanese arts and culture, or the language itself, meant that the FBI were going to pick you up. Right? So what happened was, uh, the musical notation for Gaoku, like this, these were all burned. Destroyed. Many of the instruments were buried and rotted. A few instruments were stored away in remote places in the temple storehouse somewhere, and they survived. And this is one of them. This is the only thing that came out of the Elegancy when they moved to the Elegancy. Uh, and they gave it to Kimura. Um, but most of the instruments 
and the music, everything, the costumes were all gone, were destroyed, or not, never recovered. Uh, up until that time, it was Garaku, uh, Issei's played Biwa, remember Biwa? Shigin, remember Shigin? Those of you who had weddings and said, all right, Bajan, sing it, get over the quick. <laughs> You don't hear it. Shigin, Biwa, later, Koto, Chana said this. This is mainly post-war. Right? Uh, a lot of, of singing, folk songs, and so forth. Right? And Issei is, unlike Nisei's, all knew one piece, whether it was a poem, a song, putting hashi in their nose and dancing, whatever it was, <laughs> they all knew one thing. Because, for the whole of the Issei generation, performing arts were considered mature adult arts. This ended with Prohanka. And Issei did not grow up that way. So when, they, when we got out of camp, it became children's entertainment. So it's something children did. The Dharma school teachers took over and, and did all these skits and so forth. So the idea of performing arts as a mature adult activity died. And it's only with the third generation that performing arts starts to revive again as a legitimate occupation. Right? Because Yuni says had to be engineers or doctors or yada 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 yada. But you are not going into music. So that didn't happen until Peter Hatta came along. <laughs> it's in the next generation. So now, luckily, uh, Sansei. Uh, performing arts are flourishing now. But there was this interval. So there's a disconnect between traditional and present day. It was just, it just disappeared. Right? And the Nisei, when they came back from camp, they did not want to have anything to do with that. For very good reason. That's what got them at camp. Right? <laughs> and this explains why Niseis were such terrible chanters. <laughs> they don't want to camp for very simple reasons. They're embarrassed them. They're embarrassed them. Right? That whole generation was made feel embarrassed to be Buddhist, to be practicing Buddhist. And it's true. And I can prove it to you. If you're a Nisei, I can prove it to you. Stand up and I'll prove it to you. And that's true. And that's our inheritance. And we're just barely getting out of that as well. A Nisei would never ask me to talk about God. Never. Right? Sansei said, well, what is that noise? <laughs> yeah, and that's our history. What I want you to understand is, Gaga is the oldest historically documented music in the world. There is nothing older than Gaga. Right? Western music, the earliest documented thing is about 11th century, at the earliest. Then it becomes notated, the music you know today classical and otherwise. There's nothing earlier than that. Right? There's a piece that we play, that uh, temples play, fairly often, and it's called... Goshoraku. Uh, a piece called Goshoraku. And it's used in, in particularly in Shomaji, in uh, large ceremonies. Right? And it was written by the Emperor, Tang Emperor Taizong. 
who reigned from 627 to 649 AD. The emperor wrote this. Right? That's a fairly old piece, but a really old piece Butokuraku, uh, which is also uh, on the repertoire of Ishihong Manji. Butokuraku uh, was written by the Han Emperor Kaotsu. And Kaotsu reigned 200 to 195 BC. Okay? So the oldest piece we have in the repertoire of Garaku is 200 BC. Right? Any piece of music that is that developed has at least a 200 year history preceding Any musicologist will tell you this. So this piece was being played as you hear it today, at least 400 BC, about 100 years after Buddha dies. This is old music, folks. <laughs> and it's still played today. It represents the music of ancient Asia. Whatever was in Asia uh, on a classical level in, in Asia up to the 10th century AD is preserved in Goa. It represents the music of India, uh, Central Asia, China, Korea, Vietnam, and Japan. It exists in no other country except Japan. It died out in every other country. It only exists in Japan and portions of it in Korea known as Aa, but a very small portion. The, the major portion is preserved by the imperial court, uh, major Buddhist temples that are connected to the imperial court, and major shrines that are connected to the imperial court. And Nishihongaji, uh, I just asked Reverend Nasu. If I'm wrong, it's Reverend Nasu's fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somewhere around 1590, the Monshu of Nishihongaji married into the imperial family. And from that point on, Nishihongaji becomes what's called a Monzeki Dera. If you've been to Nishihongaji uh, in Kyoto, it has a big wall around it, right? And it has five stripes, five white stripes along the entire wall. This is a sign of a Monzeki Dera. Right? which means the abbot of this temple is related to the imperial family. Once that happens, Gaiaku enters into the ritual of that temple. Also, Shomyo enters into the ritual of that temple. So Shomyo was not done before that time. Um, so uh, from that point on, Gaiaku becomes a part of the Shomyo repertoire, musical uh, ritual. What's fascinating about it is the most peasant-based, democratic, egalitarian religion you could imagine in Buddhism plays imperial court music. <laughs> and is headed by a, by a hereditary clergy who are basically born and raised aristocrats. And they service us who are good farming stock. Right? All of you who have been here before 1930, before 1930, okay, unless you are related to a minister's family, are not from samurai lineage. I don't care what Rancha told you, she was <laughs> You're all good, strong peasants like us. You know, for a very good reason. Why would a samurai come here in the first place? <laughs> And remember that big bugaboo about Burakumi? The 
Ethan, the pariahs that came here? Not true. Because it was Meiji government policy not to allow such people to represent the Japanese overseas. So the Issei just knew that when they didn't want you to marry somebody they didn't like. <laughs> so they accused them of being, and they weren't at all, and it's not true. It's not true. So give up your samurai lineage and all that stuff. You come from much better farming stock. You know why? Peasants worked. Samurais didn't work. They had a lot of time on their hands. That's when they practiced everything. What farmer gets up at four in the morning to practice farming? That's ridiculous. <laughs> There's no practice in Jodashinshu. You just live it. And it makes sense that it comes from a farming background. Ironically, its ritual is the most aristocratic of all music in Japan. Because it's hooked to Tendai, uh, liturgy and music, which is one of the oldest, the, the two oldest forms of Buddhist music are Shingo and Tendai, Koyasan or Tendai Shu. And Jola Shinshu is connected to Tendai. Right? So it has this elegant music. Right? In my mind, Gaku is a perfect Buddhist music. Because unlike Western music, there's no harmony at all. In other words, there are no secondary supportive sounds. Each instrument is made to be heard and has its time to be heard in this composition. Right? So that everything about it is different. There's nothing the same, and there's no supporting person. Everyone is themselves. And when that happens, it forms this harmonious whole that goes up. It seems like this music has been here forever and will always be here. It is, has this eternal static quality to it. We have slow, medium, and fast. You know what fast is? That's fast. They don't get any faster than that. Right? So it's just... If you are what you are and, and, and live with that, you can contribute to everything else. If you try to imitate somebody, you're a distraction. This holds true later when I talk about chanting. That's the purpose of it. So God was a perfect song. It's perfect. It's made up of very strange instruments. The most the noisiest is this tiny little thing. It's a double reed thing called a shiriki. And this small thing originates in probably the border between Iraq and Afghanistan. When it goes east, it becomes a chalumera, uh, all kinds of double reed instruments in Asian music. When it goes west, it becomes a double reed oboe, a bagpipe, that kind of thing. So this is the mother of all of those instruments. Right? Um, it's noisy. If you want to Build your house of rats, call me.
that immaterial the slightly different melodies. And these are the two main melody instruments. The, the third one is this. It's called the shawl, and it has bamboo pipes in a cup. And at the inside here, there's a, a silver reed on each of these pipes, tuned by beeswax. So this is why, uh, before we play, you have to warm it up. Because if the wax is cold, it gets stiff and it won't move. So you have to loosen it by warming it up. After you play it, it's so full of moisture, you have to dry it out. <laughs> so show players are always doing this before and after. But the show is a, is the, this is the origin of the, of the organ, of the harmonica, the organ. Uh, it's called the kin in, in Asia, the, the uh, shun in Chinese, and the show in Japanese. And the show does not play melody, it plays uh, chords. But it's played in one, two, three, four. And then when it, the next uh, count is the pitch of the, the starting pitch of the shiriki. Uh, and I, I, I don't know music, I cannot read music or anything, but I'm told that the show, because of where it plays, creates the sound over the melody and under the melody, which doesn't happen in any kind of music ever found in the world. It only happens in Ghana. It's a kind of, uh, it's a very nice sound. There are holes at the bottom of each pipe, and when you, when you cover the hole, it sounds. And it, it will sound whether you blow out or suck in. So it's continuous sound. So it's, it's worth much more now. So 
they're just, they're just impossible to get. If you can find one, that you're going to pay about fifteen to twenty thousand for it. In the meantime, you get these. <laughs> these are used. That's why the bamboo is here. But it's this color, not because they painted. It's smoked for two hundred years. If you go to north of Kyoto now, there are very few farmhouses left. <laughs> and then, in fact, there are very few showmakers who will bother to go to that trouble to make this kind of show. So the trouble is getting these instruments. Um, we have tracked down five that still exist that when they die, they said they will will to Kinara, which makes it really awkward. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> because I like the instrument, this, this noisy thing. But when I came back, UCLA was just forming their ethnomusicology department, and a man from the imperial household named Sueno Mutogi was teaching there. So, you know, shoot, I'm a barbarian, I just called them. I said, hey, Sensei, you want to teach at Sensei? You know. And he said, okay. And he did it. He taught us for 30 seven years. Uh, every other week he'd come out to Senshi and teach us. And he recently re returned to Japan, but he taught us for that time. And so we've been playing for that long period. Uh, he also went up to Berkeley for a short time to start a group and taught. And then recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, another, in fact, uh, Reverend David brought a group from Berkeley who wanted to start a group. And we met in San Luis Obispo for three days. It was, it was terrific. Um, they were so good. They learned this piece in three days. I'm going to smack them. <laughs> <laughs> it took us 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> three days. That's, that's disgusting. But anyway, we're, trying to, we're hoping to hook up and, and play and get a big orchestra going. Because when it's big, it's really this great, great sound. So I'd like to... to play for you one piece, which is probably the one, if anything, if you've ever heard Gaku, it's this piece called Eten Gaku, um, which is qualified as a new piece. New piece what means it's from 900. <laughs> from 900 to 1300 is called new music. There's nothing after 1300. The new music is 900 to 1300. Anything before 900 is called old music. <laughs> Is it? It's the last one. Eten Naku is the most popular piece in the Gaku repertoire. And you know this melody because those of you who sing Nori no Miyama, Nori no Miyama, that's Eten It's taken exa almost exactly from Eten Naku. Uh, means heaven transcending music. Uh, and it's used today in weddings. So this is the wedding march in, in modern day. It's used at weddings.
Um, Garakur is really strange because one of the, 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 the really different points about Japanese music is its rhythm. It has, in, in chanting, you have two kinds of rhythm, teikyoku and jokyoku. Teikyoku is a set, counter beats. Jokyoku, it stretches, right? And Garakur stretches. It's You have to be 
very attuned to everybody else. And it's that sense that gives this music its eternal quality. There's no development to a climax. There's no progression. It's you can come in and listen to it and come back an hour later, it's still gone. <laughs> and this is what we use for our rituals. Um, mainly for processional music, sometimes in the actual chanting of Shomyo itself, which most ministers don't like because you have to have the pitch of this instrument, which is on, and most of us are off, so we don't like to have it. Um, the Senshu Raku that we played is called Music of a Thousand Autumn. It's the funeral music for the emperor. So whenever our emperor dies, uh, we play Senshura. But it was also used in Buddhist temples as the last piece of a large ritual. So once you heard Senshura, it meant the ritual was over. So in Japanese, if you say, this is my Senshura, it means this is my swan song. It's the last one. Or if you say, it's the last karaoke singer. <laughs> That's it. So it has that meaning of the last of something. Right? Just like the Juhachiba, number 18. We don't say number one in Japanese. We say number 18. For the 18th vowel, of course, it's the best. So you say, I want to sing my Juhachiba. I want to sing my number 18. That's song. Ah, five more minutes. Oh, shoot. Okay. For the whole thing? Oh, okay. Forget, forget, uh, I gotta go to Okyo. <laughs> the chanting of sutras is the same thing. It's the exact same thing. And the only reason you don't chant it is you got a big ego. You're you're embarrassed to chant it in front of everybody. You're ashamed. If you're Nisa, you're ashamed to chant. You're taught that way. If you're Sansei, it's too weird, so you're you're embarrassed to chant it. In either case, it has everything to do with ego. And you don't want to admit that's the case. So what do you say? I can't understand it, Sensei. That's an excuse to cover up the fact that you're ashamed to do this. If you are not, I guarantee you that sound of Agaku and the sound of chanting will, will, will vibrate your entire body in a way that is profoundly Buddhistic. Chanting is not meant to be watched. It is meant to be done. In the same way, Bodhi is not meant to be watched. It is meant to be done. And if you watch it, you're a fool. <laughs> if you dance it, you're a fool. <laughs> and if you're a fool, you better dance. <laughs> this, is the, this is the ultimate lyric of the Aodori. Odoru aho, nimiru aho. Wankaji aho nara odoranya son and son banda. And this is really true. <laughs> All of you who, who teach Bodori or go to the practice or you know the dance code, what do you do? You, you flaunt it at Bollander. That's your ego in action. Check me, I know it. That's pure ego. Those who don't want to practice, pure ego. They're too embarrassed to do it. I don't know it, so they hang around. In any case, it's just pure ego. This is why you have to dance. Dance with flaunting it. Dance with your flaunting ego. Dance with your embarrassed ego. What's important is you have to dance. Because sooner or later, you're going to forget it. And once you forget it, this is Hontanabodhari. And once you're doing Hontanabodhari, it is the only time you will naturally remember someone who has died and to whom you are profoundly indebted. Because before that, you do fully yourself. 
If you're show, showing off, what could possibly enter into you? Your ego is so fat you can barely hold your head up. Right? If you don't know the dance, you're trying to hide around corners and pretend you're not making a fool of yourself. That's ego. Right? So just doing bondhood is profoundly important to us. That is our definition of bondhood. It is not Japan's. Japan is dead. It doesn't exist in Japan. Not as a spiritual exercise. And it's almost disappearing here. Because we use it to get people to come and buy food at your car. <laughs> I have a perfect solution for that. Get some really good strippers. <laughs> you can double your audience. Right? But it's not for that. It's for everyone to dance. It's for everyone to chant. To chant. Right? And that's a kishiki. A ritual is something you participate in, not something you watch. I find it really odd that choirs always face the audience. Never the Hotakisa when they sing. Gahu, you cannot face the audience. You can face from the side or you face right in front of the Hotakisa facing it. You never face the audience. Why? Because this music is trying to emulate and bring to pure sound what it means to wake up and be connected. So there's a difference between Horaku as entertainment and Horaku as ritual. And Gaku and, and chanting are the quintessential practice. Ritual is practice. You ever, you ever meet people, they always ask you, what is your practice? When we go, oh, well, we don't, we, we don't do too much anything. We chant. What you talking about? We chant. That's what we do. We chant and we eat. <laughs> That's our practice. And we do it very well. Thank you. <laughs> Well, the chanting not so good. We need to look at chanting again. We really do. Because we have an opportunity to do what cannot be done in Japan, to learn shomyo, which up until now has a priestly property. No one chants it except priests. But here, we can. Sambujo, Chishinrai, Zensho Kada, Yoraku Kada, all the Gemo, all the Gathas. Gatha is a section in a sutra a poem or a song. And in Chinese, it's a set number of kanji. Right? So, cho xin ge, right? Jew say ge, ge means gatha. Right? So, Jew uh, say it has five kanji. Da go jo se ga yishi mu has four. Go den di yi, right? These are all gathas. But because we come from a Christian background, we wanted to sing hymns. So, since Gatha was a song, we called it Gathas. Right? The Sanskrit Gatha, Gatha. But now we call it Gatha, right? So those are basically Christian hymns in disguise. So we have two definitions of Gathas. But the, the fundamental thing is the sound of Okyo. Not that somebody else does, but that you do. Because if you're in the sound, you're connected to the next sound. If you're absorbing it, you got nothing to do with it, and it's boring. Right? It's tedious. And it gets even more confusing if you know what the hell you're talking about. Right? You don't need to know it in English. No Buddhist chants in a language they understand. The Japanese don't, it's Chinese. The Chinese don't, it's classical Chinese. Or Buddhist Chinese is really different. Right? All of Southeast Asia chants in Pali, a dead language. Right? The Bhutanese chant in Tibetan, but classical Tibetan. 
Right? They don't know what they're jacking. It's sound. That's the reason for sound. How to get your ego to just put this sound out. Because if you knew what you were saying, your mind's going mile a minute. At one time, that was, I was down in that bunch of people with 20,000, 40,000, 10,000, Baha, something like that. I said, Oh, you have a five feet to the pizza, that's what you are thinking about. Nonsense. It sounds dorky, doesn't it? You say the same thing. It goes on and on. And the next layer of sound enters, and the next layer, and the next layer, and the next layer. And pretty soon, you have this incredibly thick sound with each sound being heard. You are not to imitate somebody else. You are to stick with your own voice, as bad as it may sound to you. That's your voice, and that's the one you put out. And when you do, creates a snake. If it doesn't, and you're copying everybody else, the best voice, it sounds like this. It's dark. It's almost embarrassing to do it that way. We need to start learning to chant all over again because the war did a number on us. It did. It made us profoundly ashamed to do this. And uh, it is one of the most powerful non-intellectual things you can understand about Buddhism. I don't care whether you're a Sansei or a Yonsei and never went back to church after Sunday school. The one thing you remember is the sound of that chanting. They do. They all do. And they don't know why they remember it. They don't understand a word they say. But they remember it. And it means Buddhism. That's what it means. So before you toss it away, please consider it more deeply. Please. Hi. Question.